I'm sitting in my wardrobe, um, kind of dripping wet actually, in a little summer dress, but feeling very refreshed. And I'm in my wardrobe because it's carpeted. So I'm in my wardrobe just for you, Katrina. Hi, I'm Katrina Blowers, and you're listening to Claiming Your Confidence, conversations where we pull back the curtain on what it takes to live your most confident life. I'm a journalist and TV newsreader, and of all the people I've interviewed over the years, I can tell you confidence isn't something any one of them was born with. So what separates those who refuse to let that self-doubt hold them back? Let's find out. When you think of TV personality Liz Cantor, you think of sunshine and beaches, an all-Australian girl who, after leaving the professional surfing circuit, turned actress, reality TV star, radio personality, lifestyle show host and weather presenter. The Bureau is forecasting around 40 millimetres. But there's a side to Liz she's never before spoken about publicly until today. I just closed my eyes and I remember it was the first time in my life like I actually went, I need to check out. I need to check out. I can't be, I can't be here. The birth of Liz's second son, Finn, was hugely traumatic and the memory of that triggered a panic attack while she was driving 110 k's at night on a busy freeway. And then the next minute, my whole body just flooded and I realised that I couldn't see. I am so, so honoured Liz chose this podcast as the place to tell her story. She wanted to normalise that experience of going on medication and seeking help. She also talks for the first time about dating the star of the hit TV show Entourage. Yep, you bet. I totally got that one out of her. So here is the incredible, warm, courageous and honest Liz Cantor on claiming her confidence. The outdoors, the beach, you know, exercise, that has always been a huge part of your life and you were on the professional junior circuit as a surfer. From what age, Liz? It's a funny one. I actually started surfing around the age of 16 and I started surfing because I was jealous my brother who was a surfer was getting a week off school for um, a state titles competition and I thought, oh, if he's getting a week off school, I want a week off school, I'm going to start surfing. Um, but at that time there weren't a hell of a lot of girls surfing so I'd always bodyboarded. I'd always been in the ocean with my dad and my brother who were surfers but it just made more sense to be on a bodyboard. Um, so I switched to surfing at that point at 16 and just never looked back. From that competition onwards, I just, yeah, it felt like a calling. But before then, actually, my main passion was horse riding. So, and I actually link horse riding and surfing into quite a similar category where they're both these exercises that you do in nature. You have to be present they're unpredictable like the ocean's unpredictable horses are unpredictable you have to be aware of your surroundings and what's going on um and I love that feeling because you stop thinking about anything else and you're just there in the moment you're either riding a horse or riding a wave um and if you do a good job in that moment it's so rewarding 
And of course, from there, you then went on to dip your toe into the world of showbiz. So how did how did that happen? So you, it says, you know, in your when I Google you, it says that your very first role was in the feature film Blurred, and then of course you went on to land a role in Blue Water High, which is so cool. But how did all that pan out for you, Liz? Okay, so Google has this backwards because that world was before my surfing world. It's ah. I listen to your podcast and I always smile when I hear your intro and occasionally I think you say, you know, no one is born with confidence. Well, I beg to differ um, and I still have this ounce of shame in saying that, but I honestly think I was just born with confidence. I mean, confidence is different to fear. Fear is like a self-preservation Thing we all have to stop us from, you know, jumping off a cliff for, <laughs> to keep us alive. But confidence is different. And when I look back through my childhood, even from the age of two, all my baby pictures, like if there was a stage, I was on it. If there was a dance floor, I was on it. I was cringeworthy. <laughs> I was that child. So as well as your Blue Water High role, you then went on to a reality TV show which you won, which I had forgotten about until I looked this up, <laughs> called The Mole, which you, which was probably where you're lying because you had to deceive and um, be a saboteur. It's probably where all of that early uh, practice around, you know, um, pulling the wool over people's eyes came into its own. Katrina, that was such a weird thing for me. Like you talk about manifesting things, <laughs> but um, okay. So where do I begin? I left surf judging where I was making incredible money. I was on, to be honest, and you think back then in in two thousand and three, one thousand dollars a day US. I left wow. traveling to places like Fiji, Hawaii, the UK to go and do a journalism degree because it was just still in me that what I really wanted to do in my lifetime was share information and stories and kind of like light people up the way I felt when I was being given information and stories. Um, So I went and did the journalism degree and then where am I going? What was your question again? (laughs) The reality show. The reality show. I knew I was going somewhere. So post-university, It is so hard to get a job in journalism. As you would know, I did work experience for a year down in Sydney. I worked for Channel 7. I was actually, I did work experience for Ben Davies, Vic Cartwright, Paddy Walsh, Rowan over at Channel 9. I was doing work experience at Channel 9. Um, And it just, I was struggling to get a job. And on the mole, I was still quite, I don't know, ignorant about a lot of things. I was the youngest person of 12 contestants. I, it meant a lot to me to be liked by the contestants. They were all older. There was um, an ex-policeman. There was lawyers. There was doctors. I was wanting to be liked by the crowd. And for me, I'd been conditioned all my life. If you want to be liked, you don't lie to people. So I found myself trying to make relationships and bonding by being too honest. Like it wasn't in my favor by the game saying, oh, I'm not the mole. Who are you thinking? Blah, blah, blah. Um, and people kind of started to play it as a bluff. But what I have learned about myself is that I really do, I've been blessed with a really good gut intuition. There's something to be said for trusting your intuition. And I just remember it was episode two, looking at the group of people on the mole and looking at John, who was the ex-detective, and thinking to myself, 
if I was a casting director, who would I want to be the mole? Who is the smartest person in this room who could pull off a lie and just zeroing in on John. And that's beautiful because I think, you know, a lot of people now talk about intuition and it's become a thing now that people sort of recognise and talk about and there's even some science to to back it now because it is such a hard thing to measure. But I, I guess for you to know that so early on that you could trust your gut and that actually, you know, that, that it was a tangible thing that led to correct outcomes must have served you so well in life it did um and then following the mole I mean to I won I won a large amount of money and I probably did everything wrong career-wise <laughs> but I got lucky because Craig to Coast contacted me about two months later and said we'd love to give you a run we we know you've got a surfing background we enjoyed watching you on the mole would you would you come and do some presenting for us but after I won the mole I was so embarrassed embarrassed at the attention I was getting as Liz Cantor as opposed to what I expected of going on a TV show and being part of the performance um, that I got on a plane to Hawaii and rather than doing most of the press interviews where people were going to ask me about the money I'd won and what I'd do with that money and who I was, I turned my phone off for a week. Let's fast forward a little bit. So you've you've said that you you pretty much thought you were born with confidence, but when did that become something that you had to really draw upon? Was it around the time when you had your children or was it before then? Okay, so I really thought I was nailing techniques for confidence in my surfing especially when I was physically competing and my, I heat myself I used to get incredibly nervous to the point where I'd be paddling out for my heat and my knees would be knocking so hard on the board because my whole body would just be charged with adrenaline and trembling um so I did a bit of work with sports psychologists to find that there's something called the optimal curve where you want just enough adrenaline in your system um, and to be peaking and to be on that you are going to hyper perform but you don't want too much that it's going to hinder you and I did a lot of work finding that right balance where I'd be firing at the exact right level to be the best of my abilities but not over firing to crumble and I was so lucky I was exposed to athletes like Kelly Slater who you know I I spoke to once and said I was so nervous before he he said, do what I do this, like throw on a pair of headphones. Don't even plug them into your, I think it was the iPods or whatever it was that played music back then. <laughs> a disc, a discman. <laughs> yeah, we had to listen to the heats before us to know what was going on with the conditions and who was getting what scores. But having headphones in stopped everyone else talking to me and getting in my head and asking me how I was feeling. And I wouldn't even have anything playing in them, but I could switch off from everyone around me and focus. One of the things that, that was in the spotlight before you met your beautiful husband was your love life. Your love life did get a fair bit of press, uh, including a, a couple of high-profile people who you were you were connected with. Um, Adrian Grenier from Entourage, was that a thing? Oh, Katrina, what are you doing to me? Because <laughs> <laughs> this is something I didn't oh, know until I Googled. Right. I was like, no, what? 
I'm such a good place in my I've never spoken to anyone about Adrian and because I absolutely love you and respect you, I'm gonna give you this or you could call it exclusive about how many people will be listening to my story. <laughs> it's old news. But um Yes, I'm happily married with Ryan now, who I absolutely adore. But I, I said to you before, like the power of manifesting is just so bizarre. So, Adrian, I had broken up from a seven-year relationship with a partner that I was living with for two years. He was my first true love. And that anyone who's been through a breakup, it is such a time of knocked confidence and questioning yourself and confusion and it, it, there's a sense of grieving when you've been in love and that comes to an end. And so I left the Gold Coast where I was living with him and I moved to Sydney and I, that was, I just finished my journalism degree and I was going to do work experience at all the networks. And I didn't really know anyone in Sydney. And I was living with a film producer who's, <laughs> I'd actually surfed in one of his film clips once for free as a favor. And in return, when I moved to Sydney, I said, I don't know where to live. Where do you recommend renting? And he said, I've got a place in Point Piper. I'm going overseas for six months. Do you want to look after it and then work out where in Sydney you want to live? So I found myself living in Point Piper in this beautiful apartment with his whole DVD collection. And within that DVD collection was... Um, a, I guess it was a pilot for Entourage and I pulled it out and I started watching it and I just, I binged it. It was like one of the first dramas I ever binged. And then oddly enough, um, a few months later, I got a call from CFM who I'd done driving in the sea cruises for during uni days. And they said, we've got the main star from Entourage flying into Sydney and we need someone on the ground there to go and interview him. Are you available? And I remember just catching myself going, is this real life? Like I have just been going to bed with Entourage on my own for three weeks and you're asking me to go and speak to like the main actor in Entourage, like who I never thought I'd meet my whole entire life. So I found myself at the Hyatt. It's the weirdest day. I took along a girlfriend. Adrian walks in and he was so familiar to me. There was no social media back then, but I'd sat with him every evening healing from my breakup <laughs> I kind of found myself waved to him and then I felt like an idiot because I was like why am I waving to him he doesn't know me but his face was just so familiar to me and he sat down and we chatted and he liked my friend Keena that I had with me he had a bit of a crush on her and at the end of the interview he said what are you girls doing tonight do you want to we're going to dinner at icebergs do you want to come along and I I knew what icebergs was and I was like I can't afford to eat there and he said give me a number and I'll message you later and tell you what's happening so long story short I Tina had a boyfriend we had to make it pretty clear through the text messages Tina was not available but he said I don't care you girls are great just come join me you know it's it's on me because I had also said oh icebergs a bit out of our price range um so we just took a leap of faith and we just went to that dinner that evening. I sat next to Adrian. I kind of told him where I was at, that I was still in love with my ex-boyfriend. I'd been through a breakup and he's just, I remember saying to him as well, um, we, we spoke a little bit about Entourage and I said, do you know what I loved about Entourage? E. I just loved the character E. And he goes, well, you know what's funny? In real life, I'm E. And in real life, Kevin <laughs> Connolly is Vinny Chase. Like, so you've, you've met the right person. And from that moment on, something formed where he knew I was in a process of healing. I had no expectations or wants from him. And he just took me under wing and he taught me, like, it makes me even 
emotional to say like how much he helped me recover my confidence and how much of a gift he was to me in like inviting me over to LA, stay in my place in Brooklyn, stay in my place in LA. It was just, he was a real gift to me at that period in life where I had to learn that the world wasn't black and white. There was gray and there was this other world out there. And oh my God, there were crazy moments like falling down the stairs at Katana in front of a heap of paparazzi because I got distracted by flashlights and that luckily because I was unknown never ended up anywhere but Adrian picking me up at the bottom of the stairs and us just bursting into laughter it was just one of those magical relationships where it didn't even really end it just was a period in time and we still talk to each other now but obviously getting together with Ryan I have to respect how you know he feels and not make him feel uncomfortable but yeah he was he was definitely a manifested gift you could say. That is a beautiful story and I'm really glad I asked you about that because isn't it funny how the right person shows up and out of all of the DVDs that that film producer had in his collection you were somehow you gravitated towards Entourage and then Adrian showed up and helped you get through that tough time in your life. I think that is beautiful. So weird. Thank you for joining the wonderfully courageous Liz Cantor and me, Katrina Blowers, on Claiming Your Confidence. In just a moment, Liz is going to publicly tell the hardest part of her story. She's never spoken about it with anyone outside her immediate family. All right, let's let's now talk about the story that you you reached out to me, which I knew nothing about, which was how you went through quite a tough time with the birth of your beautiful boys. How how did that all play out? And talk to me a little bit about some of those darker moments for you. I've probably been rambling to avoid this <laughs> this conversation. <laughs> I knew it was coming up, but I, I guess if I start at the birth of Kit, so Kit was um, my first son. I found out pretty early on in pregnancy that I had a low-lying placenta. So where my placenta had attached was blocking the cervix and there was going to be no way for him to physically come out in a natural birth. Um, And so then Finn came around. It was um, a better pregnancy. I found out that everything was in the correct place. I was on track for a natural birth. And as it got close to the end, Finn's head engaged and they said, oh, you're looking good for a a VBAC, which is a vaginal birth post cesarean. And then we were waiting for it. And then Finn disengaged. And when I went back to my obstetrician to check, he said, I can't feel baby's head anymore. That's unusual. It usually means that the baby might not be compatible with your pelvis. And he sent me for a scan and they did a scan and Finn was reading about um, four kilos. And he's I came back with the scan and I had a bit of a breakdown because the obstetrician said, look, Liz, he's disengaged because he's too big for you. He's not going to come out naturally. Um, And he pressured me pretty strongly to immediately go and have another cesarean. So I got my head around it and went, okay, that's it. You know, you're going to have another birth like kids, which was beautiful. I got another great playlist organized. We went in for surgery. It was a really great morning and I'd actually been doing hypnobirthing um, quite intensely like classes with Ryan in the lead up to Finn's birth thinking that I was getting ready for a VBAC and not putting the pressure on myself but going okay if we do it without any pain relief then I want to be able to kind of really 
be able to tap into skills of hypnobirthing to help keep myself calm and to handle any pain. And we went to the cesarean. The cesarean starts. I'm going to try and slow down because I can feel myself talking quickly already. Um, And immediately I kind of read the energy in the room that something had gone wrong. And I now know that when my obstetrician touched me with the scalpel to make the incision, my uterus ruptured. Um, oh, my uterus exploded and I had a mass bleed out, um, which was slightly, it, w- it was unexpected, but obstetricians are incredible and he knew what to do in the situation, but it was immediately high risk. So I heard him say, can we stop the music? And so when I heard him say, can we stop the music? I remember thinking, what? the hell like that's not right and I looked at Ryan and Ryan had also been training in these hypnobirthing skills and I said to Ryan talk to me like because we've practiced you're on a beach you're swimming in the water and all he could say to me was you're right and I go no 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 talk to me you're right and all I could see in him and I actually carried a lot of anger for quite a while towards him afterwards for that but I also had to come back and go okay Ryan was watching possibly thinking maybe he was going to lose his wife and baby like I need to be forgiving that I couldn't lean into him in that moment so anyway that was the first thing that started going wrong next minute I hear them ask for a vacuum and then forceps and then suction and I'm thinking forceps in a cesarean like what the hell? And the noises, it was like they were doing the most intense gym workout, like the grunting and groaning and shoving and pushing. And I just knew I was like, something's wrong with the baby. Like something is going really wrong. They can't get him out. And then next minute, it felt like I'd been hit by a truck in my heart. Like it was honestly like someone had punched me as hard as they could in the heart. And without even thinking, I kind of gasped out loud, there's something wrong with my heart. And at that stage, I didn't realize that my blood pressure from the uterus rupture was crashing. Um, so I was bleeding out. Um, and my obstetrician heard me say it and he just said, I heard him say scissors. And at that point, I just closed my eyes. And I remember it was the first time in my life, like I actually went, I need to check out. I need to check out. I can't be, I can't be here. And I closed my eyes. And what I now know is that he had to do an abdominal cut two centimeters each side. Um, Cause with cesareans, it's quite clever these days. They don't cut your abdominal muscles. They go underneath them. So they cut your uterus and go up and under and take baby out. But Finn was, Finn came out 4.4 kilos, which is over 10 pounds. And with a shoulder circumference that wouldn't fit through my incision. Um, so oh my gosh. extra cuts to get him out. And it felt like it had gone for 45 minutes. And that even after all of that, um, I was alive and I remember being in recovery and they had to take Finn to intensive care um, because he had, really dropped his body temperature with how long it took to get him out. Um, and he was breathing a bit funny and he obviously experienced a bit of stress. But I remember the first thing my obstetrician said to me when he came in to see me and I still didn't even have baby yet. And this, this can be so medical, but he said to me, like, if that had been a natural birth, that would have been beyond catastrophic. Oh my gosh. All, all he said. And I remember lying there and just asking is, the baby okay? Is the baby okay? So you fast forward after that and we were great. They gave me Finn and despite him being the 
ugliest baby you've ever seen in your life. And I can say that because I'm his mother. He was so fat that one of his cheeks forced his eye to stay closed for three days. But I looked at him and I just loved him again. I've been so lucky to experience that just, oh, my God, the love I have for my children. I just, oh, if I could have a sour again, I'd have more in a heartbeat. I love mm. them so much. But um, everything was good. I was able to breastfeed. I didn't even go through kind of like the post-baby blues that you can experience hormonally in the days after. Um, we got on with life. We were all on track. Finn was okay. I recovered surprisingly okay from the abdominal cuts and the cesarean. Kit walked into the hospital five days later and I picked him up. Um, like, which I shouldn't have done post-surgery, but it just, everything bounced back. And then it was four months on and I finally went back to work. Four months later, I had a creek to coast story. I got called out to at Archerfield Speedway and I had the best day. I was so happy to be back at work. I was expressing, um, you know, putting bottles aside. The day came to an end and I went to drive home and I was on the M1. I was driving my car and a motorbike came roaring up behind me and there was a truck inside me. And I remember seeing the light of the motorbike in my rearview mirror and thinking, oh, geez, that's a bit bright. Um, I better change lanes because I feel like that's a bit blinding. And then the next minute, my whole body just flooded and I realized that I couldn't see. And I oh went, my gosh. I've got no vision. I'm flying 110 in the fast lane on the M1 from Brisbane to the Gold Coast. I need to get out of this lane. I need to get off the road. I better drop my speed. I couldn't find my dashboard. So I just remember thinking what, like in that moment, you're petrified. You're absolutely petrified. So somehow, um, like I, I kind of went to the breathing. I went to, I remember hitting my radio and thinking, sing to a song. If you can distract your brain onto the lyrics of a song, you'll get better. But I didn't get better. I still to this day can't tell you how I got off the highway, Katrina. And I got off the highway and my whole body, it was like I had hypothermia. I was that cold and everything was shaking. Um, So, and I now know that what I experienced was a panic attack. Um, So, then I, it was the first time it happened. So I moved on from it, but I definitely had my confidence knocked in terms of like, I felt like my confidence had been physically knocked from my body, which I wouldn't expect in life coming from a sporting background and having trained to do live television and have trained to compete in high pressure situations that it would actually be my body and my mind that would undo me in a situation where it could become life-threatening you know I think there's this whole thing that once you've been through an experience like that and you've worked on yourself and you've kind of come through the other side and you've rationalized it in your brain that it will no longer have any power over you and Liz I would like to share with you that anytime now that I talk about my panic attack I still get a bit of tightness in my chest and those feelings of anxiety and I think that's completely normal and um, I know for you how it's been a pretty big deal sharing this story with me and I just want to honour you for sharing this and for speaking publicly about it. So thank you. Oh, th- thanks, Katrina. I, I do believe in this podcast. I think what you're giving everyone is such a gift and I, yeah, I think this will be the only time I speak about it. I don't think I'll have to go into it again. I'm dealing 
with it in my own way, but it's definitely not an easy thing to talk about. As you just said, it, it causes a physical reaction of discomfort. Um, so I guess that's why I haven't lent into it too much in the wrong places or unnecessarily. So for I know that there are plenty of other people out there who have experienced panic attacks, including people in the public eye who have privately got in touch with me um, since I went public and, and shared their own stories with me. So it is, it's, it's a more common thing than you would think. So I would love to know how did you, how did you process it and what steps did you take? Well, it happened a few more times only ever while I was driving, but luckily I was able to recognize when it was happening sooner. So I didn't get to the point of completely losing my vision while driving a car again. I could feel my body starting to become tired and losing my breath. And so I'd pull over the car earlier, but of course I couldn't keep, it just, it was a really hard time. I remember thinking like, am I losing my mind? Like, do I need to go and get an MRI? Is there something seriously wrong with me? So of course I went to a GP. I um, spoke through everything with them. They gave me beta blockers um, as to take while driving so that I could help prevent um, these episodes because it was a dangerous situation, not just to myself, but others, if I was going to be driving a car um, and losing my vision unexpectedly. So for people who don't know what beta blockers are, what do they do? Uh, they cur- they calm the central nervous system. So when my body was going into fight or flight mode, it would help stop that and settle that um so I was also put on an anti-anxiety medication so that basically um what was happening you have your prefrontal cortex part of your brain where in the past I've been very good at being being able to go mind over matter like I'm feeling nervous I can rationalize that I'm feeling nervous because I'm doing something that's really important to me but um I guess why this was different was unlike a threat to professional identity, which can be rationalized by the brain, threat to life couldn't. And so now anytime the amygdala, the deep preservation bit of my brain was feeling a threat to life, it was flooding me um, with all neurotransmitters that I couldn't rationalize. How is even talking about it now, you can hear me stumbling all over my words. because Which is really uncommon for you. You <laughs> never stumble. <laughs> Yeah, it's really hard to talk about. And when I, so post seeing the GP, I went to a psychologist um, because really because I wanted to come off the medication and I just wanted to make sure that like with my sports training previously, I had the right tools coming off the medication to do it correctly. Um, And it was really interesting what she said at our first appointment was, look, Liz, why do you want to come off the medication? And I thought to myself, why do I want to come off the medication? Because I don't want to be reliant on something. I like to feel that I'm in control of myself. And she said, but if you've injured your knee, do you go running without strapping it? Why is it different Mm -hmm. if you've injured your brain? Why do you feel like you need to go running on your brain without strapping it? And I couldn't answer that question. So she said to me, look, let's, let's work on this, but stay on the medication a little bit longer and don't pressurize yourself to come off it when you've had a brain injury, which is what you've had with trauma and these PTS symptoms. Um, and when she actually spoke me through what my triggers were and the, um, the stimulus that was causing these panic attacks, it made a lot of sense to me like the in situ situations um you know I'd had an epidural my 
you know, I couldn't move. I was trapped on a table. I could sense that there was danger to myself. I could sense that there was danger to my baby. Um, And for some reason, driving at high speed, trapped into a car seat with artificial lights around me, it was taking my brain back in situ of what happened with my birth with Finn. And she asked me to describe in surgery during that birth what I remembered the most. And it was really interesting because I'd never been asked that before. And what I said to her was everything was happening so fast. And she said, well, isn't it interesting that you're having your panic attacks driving at high speed? Oh, my gosh. Just for her to join those dots, it must have been such a relief for you to know that, you know, that there was some sense to it. Yeah. It it certainly made me feel calmer and that I wasn't going crazy. And um, a sense of trust returned to myself that I went, okay, this is, this is, evolution. This is my body keeping me safe and alive. And that's why it's happening. Um, So I was less judgmental on myself after that. And we came up with a great plan, which has been working really well of exposing myself to cues and stimuli in a way which my brain no longer interprets it as a threat. Um, And we do this in a graded way with help. So it's been I really think there's no shame in seeking help through psychologists or taking that medication. It's taken me a a long time. Well, today is the first time I've ever spoken about it with anyone other than my immediate family. Yeah. And thank you, Liz. Thank you for being so honest and open. And I know that your story is going to help so many other people. Um, When you reached out to me and you said to me, Katrina, I love what you're doing, but I feel like there's more to this than mind over matter. And I've been quite open about, I personally have not had to go on medication, but that's not to say that in the future, if I have another mental health challenge that I won't have to then, and I'm super open about it. And what your psychologist said to you about, you know, if you've got a broken ankle, you go and seek medical assistance. It's just, there's no shame in that. Yet I still feel like some of us carry around a bit of stigma still about having to go on medication for mental health issues. And I really hope that in the next year or so, uh, with more people being open like yourself, that that will change. Mm. And when you look at the different parts of the brain um, and you have knowledge and understanding of the purpose of our brain, it actually makes a lot of sense that there can be damage done that which needs to be corrected. Um, So, you know, your brain releases different neurotransmitters um, and they have been built up over, as I mentioned before, evolution when there was a lot of threat to life. Um, And these days there isn't so much threat to life. So we, we need to kind of recondition ourselves to our new environment, which is the modern world. So how are you going now? <laughs> good, good. I think I'm I'm continuing to train my nervous system, like my central nervous system. And from that foundation, as I said, we're working on graded exposure so that my brain basically gets retrained about what an actual threat is versus an unpleasant memory. So now when I feel the sensations of um, my chest becoming tight and my vision going a bit hyper aware, um, you know, I can do things like take 
three breaths. Um, I'm doing yoga and whenever I'm in safe places, what I'm doing is doing these breath exercises in a safe environment so that when I feel myself in an unsafe environment, um, for instance, I was in at the Con in Southbank the other day and they had overhead lighting, um, just like the hospital lights, you know, those, those oh, wow. lights. And yeah. as I walked in, I just suddenly felt myself get a bit dizzy and I went, what the hell? Um, and it was my brain just recognizing those lights and I just had to kind of do my three breaths that I do in yoga and immediately calm myself and sometimes I'll even go to the point of taking my shoes off and planting my feet on the ground so that I can actually feel sensation in my feet which I couldn't when I'd had the epidural and and had that sense of being trapped um, on the table and and which is similar when you're driving and you're strapped in in a seatbelt and unable to remove yourself. Um, So yeah, just graded exposure and I'm really helping, I'm really hoping that, you know, I can be successful and I definitely have noticed a huge improvement, but it's just interesting because people wouldn't suspect that they'd think, you know, I'd get nervous or maybe, you know, rightfully so have a panic attack before a live cross. But if anything, I feel so calm in that environment. Um, And then it's something I have absolutely no control over, like walking into the music conservatorium with lighting that makes me trip out. (laughs) (laughs) It's so annoying because, you know, your brain is just trying to keep you safe, but you're like, come on, brain. Like Uh, my rational mind is telling you that there's nothing to worry about. So stop doing this to me. (laughs) But it's it's definitely getting better. And as I said, um, there's really something to be said for seeking help and seeking knowledge and educating yourself if you are struggling. Um, Because yeah, it's, I've, I found it so helpful. So I would love to know, with every challenge, uh, there comes a kernel of opportunity or a gift wrapped up within that. What has been the silver lining out of this whole experience for you? Ooh, good question. I've never actually thought about that. Um, I think I've become more forgiving to myself. I think as well when you lose your sense of confidence, it makes you more understanding of others. Um, When you've heard someone say that they've had a panic attack, you can kind of be a bit smug at times and think, oh, you know, mind over matter, maybe they're just, they don't have that strength to rationalise situations in their head. But when you've actually experienced a panic attack for yourself, which is driven by the amygdala section of your brain, you know that there's no rationalising in that moment. So I think yeah, I've never thought of this, but the gift is a better understanding of the bigger picture of what is the human race and hopefully um, being able to share my experience with others so that when they're in that moment, um, they know they're not alone and they know that this is just part of being a human. And it sounds too like I know that with the horse riding and the surfing, you already had some mindfulness practices under your belt, but it sounds like this has given you even more of those tools that you can take into other parts of your life. Yeah, absolutely. And I do think I I believe in physical strength as well as mental strength. And when I am strong, I know I'm, I feel much more confident and able to look after my family. So amazing. And honestly, I'm just in awe of you for telling that story. Thank you so much. Now, I've got a few questions that I finish up on at the end of each episode, and I know that you've given us tons of tips already, but I would love to know, is there a a book that you've read or 
even an inspirational quote that um, has really helped you on your way in your confidence journey? I love books. There's so many good self-help books out there, but I find that if I'm in a bit of a rut or I've had a rough time or I just something's happened to knock my confidence a little, there's so much power in just losing yourself in a good story story escapism um over the weekend I was watching Mulan the Disney film with my son and at the end of the film the father turns to the daughter and says you know there's no courage without fear and oh wow thinking, gosh Disney got it right didn't they like Disney's quite deep really <laughs> like, I mean, courage is such a virtue and to think that you will never have experienced courage without experiencing fear makes so much sense to me um last night I finished watching the Queen's Gambler and I remember that feeling at the end like wow you know she achieved so much in life I want to do that too I just think finding those films that make you just believe in the power of passion there's a lot to be said for that and watching them in times when you're feeling a bit flat Oh, that's that's awesome advice. Now, what do you do for pure joy? Something that has no outcome or goal attached to it. Oh, you know this one. <laughs> you tell me. And <laughs> <laughs> <the> best, Katrina. <laughs> well, it's either horse riding or surfing, isn't it? <laughs> it is both. But if I was to take it one step further, oh my gosh, they give me so much joy. Um, I actually really do believe in soulmates and I don't necessarily think soulmate is the person you marry of the opposite sex. I think soulmates are those friends you find that love your passion as much as you. And when I go horse riding with my friend Tegan, it always makes me feel so happy and so alive or surfing with my best friend Alana. So find those people in life that you can just do what you love with together and celebrate that joy. And I also think it's a really great confidence tool to have things in your life that you can do that make you feel so good that if you think, you know what, if I stuff up that speech to the rest of my colleagues, I'm just going to go for a surf and feel great after it. Like, like, let's put things into perspective. And for me, even I love gardening. I love snow skiing. Like I get in my garden and I think, yeah, I had a shit day at work yesterday and I made a bit of a mistake, which not my confidence, but hey, now I'm growing my own tomatoes and I feel good. (laughs) And I've got to say, in Queensland, growing tomatoes is not an easy thing because there are so many (laughs) bugs that sabotage all your efforts. I've never managed to grow a tomato successfully, so kudos (laughs) to you. (laughs) And finally, I've loved our chat so much and I would love to know what are you working on right now in your confidence journey to take you to where you next want to be in life? I think I've always hated that line fake it till you make it I just I don't agree with it I think knowledge me neither (gasps) I'm going to do a whole separate episode on that so watch this space I think knowledge is power never stop learning as much as you can about everything and with knowledge comes confidence when you know what you're going to talk about there's no need to feel nervous because you're sharing what you know and that's a gift to others that you should feel proud of um, not nervous about so like whether for me in the past year it's been knowledge about how our brain works or even everything you do like when I step up to do a weather cross I've studied meteorology I know what I'm talking about so if I'm having an off day or I get 
a bit nervous or for some reason I forget all my lines, I can just say to myself, what do you know? What do you know that happened with the weather today? Well, I know there was a southerly change and southerly change to make the temperatures drop. And if it's southeasterly, showers will come in and I can immediately just go, okay, forget your lines, tell everyone what you know, that's a gift. Oh, such good advice. Such good advice. That was a cracker, Liz. Oh, thanks. <laughs> we want to hear something that isn't a cracker. It's a yeah, yeah. The last story I'm sharing with you because you know how much we love a story. So yeah, and you've got millions. Oh, we right. could do it. We could do three oh, more podcast really. episodes. I'm sorry, everybody, for taking up so much of your time, but. I did have a little bit of a confidence knock through COVID and I imagine a lot of people did. So basically within the network at Channel 7, we decided to save costs as much as we can and I was doing weather regionally for the Gold Coast, but they moved that um, to our Metro weather, weather reader, Tony Auden. So I had that difficult phone call that came through the boss saying that, you know, I was going to have one less shift a week and it was a bit expected and it made sense and I could absolutely rationalise that it was a good decision decision for the company but of course there was that sense of disappointment and a bit of a knock to my ego and um I got off the phone to him and I went to ring my husband immediately because I wanted a like a poor me pity me moment with the hubby and so I got off the phone to Ravs I hit redial and there was this quiet moment as Ryan answered the phone and I went babe and I hear Ravs go uh hello Oh no! Like, oh my god, I've redoubled the boss instead of my husband. Oh. And I him babe just after he's told me I've lost it. And shit. <laughs> so yeah, my other confidence moment is just to walk through a hallway past um my boss in the next couple of weeks and not go bright red. But do you know what? Just what you like now uh. that we're laughing about it. That is a funny story and, you know, bringing a sense of humour to those moments in your life where you wish the ground would swallow you up instead of instead of feeling like, ugh, I shouldn't have done that or beating yourself up on it, just to be able to have a laugh about it. And Liz, that is hilarious. <laughs> I think own that as a funny moment. We all have these moments and we've just got to push through. <laughs> On that note, thank you so much for joining me and for sharing everything that you've shared today. You are a bloody gem, Liz, and I am just so grateful to be working with you and to call you a friend. Oh, thanks, Hamla. I hope my words have been a warm blanket for someone out there. And then, yep, job done, tick. Stay connected by following Claiming Your Confidence or me, Katrina Blowers, on Instagram. For more information on this or other episodes, head to katrinablowers.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate and review on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and make sure you share it with anyone you think would benefit from a confidence pick-me-up. Claiming Your Confidence is created and produced by me, Katrina Blowers. Audio thanks to Turner. Term 6 podcast productions. I hope you're having a great week. Thank you for listening to Claiming Your Confidence.